Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. I'm Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the privilege and opportunity to sit down with LA Care's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Samir Amin. In today's episode, we learn a little bit more about LA Care, including its 3 million members, most of whom are Medi-Cal beneficiaries, and what's in store for 2024. Dr. Amin walks us through his journey on how he ultimately ended up at LA Care, what has been accomplished in year one, and what's in store for 2024 in his second year as the Chief Medical Officer. He also helps us understand what does a Chief Medical Officer do? We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on pophealthpodcast.com, checking out our YouTube channel, or visiting us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy today's episode. Dr. Amin, thanks so much for joining the show today. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So folks, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Amin just a few weeks back, or maybe maybe a month or so now, at the State of Reform Conference, which this time was hosted in Pasadena. And uh, Dr. Amin kindly uh, offered availability when I um, introduced myself, so appreciate you again. Uh, we'd like to kick off the shows by getting to know the guest a little bit, Dr. Amin. So can you share with us something about you, fun fact, hobby, something like that? Yeah, no, I'm so I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. I'm happy to go into my background and uh, in uh, more detail, I, I would say that uh, I'm a local to Southern California. I lived here all my life. Um, things that I love to do because I'm in Southern California, um, I, uh, I love the uh, the outdoors, and so try to get out and about in the sun as much as humanly possible. Uh, also, love going to movies. So, getting into the dark. Getting into the dark is that a, a movie or? No, getting into the dark in terms of getting into the, you know, spend my time out in the sun, but also spend my time okay. indoors watching <laughs> movies in the dark. The uh, pandemic was uh, was was a bad time because we could go out to the movie theater. But the second I could, I dragged my kids uh, into the movies and uh, got to them whenever we could. Awesome. Uh, so what about lately? Anything good or any recommendations you have for folks? So I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old at home. And so we, we our, our movies tend to not have a lot of gore in it, nor do they have <laughs> uh, a ton of action. I would say that my daughters are more into the, um, uh, the animation. And so I've probably seen every animated film humanly possible. Um, and so we're talking everything from Elemental to uh, the Teenage Kraken and uh, high on my daughter's list now is Paw Patrol. And so we, we looks like we got the next couple of weekends uh, set. That is great. Um, it's funny you bring movies up for the first time ever. Um, I am an AMC A-list uh, oh, nice. member. But for those of you listening, there's a trick. So AMC A-list, you know, for like 25 bucks a month, you get uh -huh. unlimited movies, max three a week. Yeah. And um so we were to go watch uh, a movie and it was about 20 bucks for the movie on a Saturday night. We're like, well, let's just do the A-list and, you know, uh -huh. go see some other movies that month. What they don't tell you in the big print, but in the fine print is three month minimum commitment. So oh, wow. <laughs> um, just a heads up in case you and your, uh, your kids are ever thinking about doing A-list, if you haven't already, uh, there's that three month minimum commitment. But sounds like- Yeah, so 
so we were th- we were thinking about it, but then that's just too much stress. Then I got to get to the movies to make it worth my while, and then that's just that's too much on me. I agree. I'm glad you haven't done it. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, um, I know we were talking off the air, and you're you know LA based here today. But did you grow up uh, here in the area, or tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so um, I did grow up here in uh, Southern California. I actually grew up in the Torrance area. Um, moved uh, to LA proper uh, for my training. So I actually uh, went to medical school at UCLA. Uh, when I finished up, I went to the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston for my uh, residency. Uh, I met my who, the person who's now my wife uh, in the last year of medical school. And so we sort of parted our separate ways. But uh, when I went to Boston, she would come by to visit. And by the tail end of residency, she told me, she's like, hey, you need to come home because I'm not going to continue to spend every every vacation freezing myself to death in Boston. And so I made the decision to come back uh, and um, and uh, pursue my career as a cardiologist. I did my cardiology fellowship at Cedars-Sinai, finished up at UCLA uh, for my interventional cardiology, um, and then began practice actually in Long Beach. Uh, at that point, moved back to Palos Verdes, uh, where I still am. Uh, but since then, moved into clinical leadership and it's been a long, winding road in clinical leadership doing something I never thought that I would, I would be doing uh, when I was in medical school. But, you know, life takes you on an interesting path, and that's the kind of the path I'm on right now. Okay, awesome. And we'll get into the, where you are today in, in a few minutes. But I want to ask you, so you mentioned, you know, the UCLA connection. You also did some uh, work with Cedars. What was the inspiration for you growing up to be a medical doctor? Yeah, so I... I I would say that there's multiple things, uh, you know, coming out of high school, I already had a good sense that I wanted to be uh, a doctor. And even beyond that, I had a particular fixation on being a cardiologist. Uh, some of that comes from, you know, the thing that everybody says, which is, you know, how you, know, you, you want to come out and you want to do something valuable with your life, uh, something where you know that you are helping people. Um, but beyond that, I would actually say that um, I love teaching and I love talking to folks and I love uh, trying to be that inflection point in their lives to make it to make a substantive difference to get that light bulb to go off. And and uh, I thought a lot about how I could teach best, how I could use my skills best. And it, it turned out for me that that was in a patient room where I could talk through the concerns of someone who came in and explain to them in simple simple vocabulary, simple terms, simple language, what was actually bothering them and, and how they could make it better. Um, and so e- e- whenever I see a patient, I always think about it as a teaching experience. I always think about it um, as an opportunity to, to really get into the detail of that person's life and see how I can be that inflection point for them. So it's, I would say it's a, a turn on the, the famous phrase, I want to help people, but more so than anything else, I'm, I'm sort of a, a teacher at heart, and I love doing that in the patient room. Okay, awesome. So you ended up becoming a doctor and doing frontline care. At what point did you decide or were you influenced or inspired to go into thinking of being a people leader? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, life, life changes in the blink of an eye, and I can remember um, I, my first job was actually coming out of UCLA, joining healthcare partners as an interventional cardiologist. And uh, the thought was I was going to come in and, you know, do angiograms during the day, see patients 
uh, in the afternoon and read ultrasounds and live my life as a clinical cardiologist. But uh, interestingly, Healthcare Partners purchased by DaVita to form DaVita Medical Group uh, basically at the onset of my career. And so when I walked in, a lot of the clinical leadership at Healthcare Partners was moving on as that transition to DaVita happened. And I remember the DaVita, the DaVita folks came down to me and they said, hey, listen, you know, you look like you could be a clinical leader. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been here for like a week. I'm like, I don't even know where, I don't even know how to, how to navigate my way uh, to the hospital, let alone uh, lead another person. Um, but, uh, you know, whenever there's that vacuum, you have a choice as to whether or not you fill it or you walk away. And, and I, I saw an opportunity there to do what I love to do, which is to engage and to teach and to uh, see if I can help. Uh, and so I took that moment and I grabbed it. And so Honestly, from literally the fourth week of me starting as a clinical cardiologist, I was sort of involved as a people leader at, at DaVita. And I, I joked to people that I probably did every single role uh, from cleaning toilets all the way up to, <laughs> to leading, leading people at my site to then leading the cardiologists and eventually you know, leading specialty medicine for them in, in uh, one of the regions for healthcare partners. Um, also learned to deal with a lot of transition as the company moved not only from healthcare partners to DaVita Medical Group, but then moved from DaVita Medical Group to um, Optum. Uh, and throughout that transition, I got mentored by a lot of great clinical leaders, uh, a lot of great operational leaders. You know, I learned everything from how to you know, use Excel to give a presentation, to lead a meeting, to put together an agenda, to take an idea to implementation. Um, I became a very operational clinical leader, um, and sort of that sort of was my springboard uh, for the future. That's and after awesome. that, I took a role over at uh, Caremore. I uh, got a lot of great mentorship there. Um, eventually, became the chief medical officer of Southern California for Caremore, and then eventually the chief medical officer of the uh, the Western region uh, for them as well. Worked a lot with Anthem. Got to know the health plan space. Uh, and then eventually transitioned over to Oscar as their chief medical officer. Yeah. So um, you're, thank you for walking through your journey. First of all, I think most folks that are listening or watching will have heard of healthcare partners, but for those of you that aren't familiar, it's one of the largest medical groups that was uh, serving in Southern California. Um, I am actually, I still call myself a healthcare partners patient because I am now an Optum patient, which you kind of walked through how healthcare uh, partners became DaVita and now is Optum, which I guess everything is Optum, it seems like nowadays. Um, and then Oscar Health. So for me, Oscar Health, I'm like, oh, like Google is investing in this healthcare plan. Like what's, I know there's more to it, a lot more to it than that. So you were there for a little bit, but what, when you, when you went from Oscar, you're now at LA Care. So what was that opportunity that arose or, or tell us about how you ended up here at LA Care? Yeah, so it's an interesting it's an interesting story, and I think um, the thread throughout my clinical leadership career has really been about helping the most vulnerable um, and getting healthcare to folks who aren't traditionally getting it. And so, even when I started Healthcare Partners, you know, I didn't make that choice randomly. Uh, you know, instead of starting in a fee for service system, I specifically chose to be in value based care. And one of the main reasons why is I had seen cardiology practiced in a number of different settings. And I knew that I wanted to be at a place where I could practice unencumbered by how I would be uh, paid. And I wanted to be able to sleep well at night knowing that I, everything I was doing was uh, for the patient and not to line my own pockets. And so I wanted to make sure that my decisions were pure 
And the best way to do that was to, to make sure that I was getting paid for the value of the care that I was providing, as opposed to the amount of care that I was providing. And, you know, a concept was explained to me very early on in my, in my clinical career, uh, as well as my clinical leadership career, um, about this idea of bending the cost curve of care. And it just made so much sense to me, which was that, hey, listen, if you gave, instead of spending a ton of money uh, in the healthcare system, when, when that's futile or that's not providing much benefit, it's better to provide that upfront when somebody's healthy to keep them healthy. Um, and you actually find that if you do that, you give good preventative care, you engage with the, the person, you listen to them, you you know provide care that's fitting their needs, valuable care, guideline-based care, that they won't get as sick, they won't end up in the hospital, and they won't end up you know having an amputation or going blind or, God forbid, having a heart attack or a stroke, and their care will be cheaper, but they'll be better for it. You know, they, nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to be in the hospital. Nobody wants to have the end of, the end of their life uh, be in suffering. And so if you can provide better care, more upfront care, you can really change the trajectory of not only the total cost of care, but their lives. Right. And so I was really drawn and attracted to that concept. And so I started Healthcare Partners for that reason. And despite the fact that I got moved from Healthcare Partners to DaVita to Optum, the mission was always the same. It was to get uh, treatment to those who are most in need upfront and uh, in a value-based way. And when I moved over to Caremore, uh, it was that in spades. Caremore has a, a large Medicare Advantage population, um, particularly uh, one that is uh, special needs um, for the sickest of the sick. And, um, and, and it was basically the same message um, with a, with a ton of heart to it. And so that's why I had made that transition from healthcare partners or Optum at that point to, um, to care more. And then the idea of moving over to Oscar was really about, you know, Hey, listen, there's this huge population uh, who are in the affordable care act space who've traditionally never had healthcare and what an opportunity to try to provide for them that healthcare in an innovative way through health tech. And so that was a really attractive move for me and is something that I, I, I wanted to, to do to see if we could get healthcare out to those who weren't engaged in the system. And we did a lot of great things at Oscar uh, in the time that I was there. So I'm very proud of that journey, very proud of what we accomplished. Uh, I would say that the move to LA Care was, you know, the same thread, the same, the same line, uh, you know, wanted to, you know, did what I could, learned a ton about the Affordable Care Act space but wanted to see more about Medicaid, wanted to see how we could uh, provide better care for our members here in LA County. Um, I met John Bacchus, the CEO of LA Care. I was really attracted to the message and the mission. Um, saw that uh, Dr. Seidman was retiring here and, and thought there was a great opportunity and so joined up. Awesome, yeah, I, uh, that's a great, a great story and you're LA County resident as well. Um, so I'm sure there's a, a nice uh, fit there. So yeah. LA care, tell folks, you know, I think most folks in, uh, in and around LA who work with Medi-Cal will obviously know LA care, but I grew up in LA County. I was fortunate not to be on Medi-Cal. And even though I worked in healthcare, but not with plans, I barely even knew what LA care was for a while, but LA care is a really big player. Give us a little background of who LA care is and why folks should know about them. Yeah. So, you know, the other attractive piece in moving, you know, one, one, um, hurdle at Oscar 
was uh, always density. Uh, Oscar Health uh, is a health plan in the Affordable Care Act space, uh, grew pretty dramatically from about 400,000 members all the way up to about a little bit over a million members, mostly in the Affordable Care Act space. But those members were uh, strewn throughout the United States in 22 some odd states. And so there would be areas where we just didn't have a ton of members, but you know, you need to make sure you cared for them in, in a holistic way. Uh, LA Care is different. We have 2.9 million members. Those 2.9 million members are all nested here in LA County. And so you're talking about being a big player. Uh, you have a massive amount of uh, responsibility and accountability for these people uh, in a very tight space. We cover about 30% of the population of LA County. And so it, it allows for you to have a greater opportunity to, to make good for these people um, because you have that degree of, um, uh, of density. Um, you are that tight-knit with your hospital systems. You're that tight-knit with your providers. Um, you're supporting the safety net. And so of the 2.9 million members, majority of them are in Medi-Cal. Uh, we also have a line of business uh, in um, Medicare, which is our duals program. Uh, we also have uh, a significant chunk in the um, Affordable Care Act space. Uh, we, um, so we're a major player in the um, uh, exchange through Covered California. And so I, we're in all different lines of business, but obviously majority of it is in Medi-Cal. And, uh, and I think we make a significant difference. I would say that over the last eight years, we've put back almost a quarter billion dollars back into the county to improve the infrastructure of the safety net. And I can go into great detail about what that safety net means for me uh, and LA Care, but uh, ha happy to talk about that uh, as we go through. Yeah, definitely. And I would like to hear a little bit more about the safety net because, um, again, even though I've been in healthcare almost 20 years, I don't really know what that meant until I started specifically serving uh, the Medi-Cal population. Before we do that, one thing I, I should have asked, um, the CMO role, Chief Medical Officer, could you give us, like, like what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I probably didn't center myself very well. So I'm the chief medical officer of LA Care. I've been the chief medical officer for almost a year now. Um, and so, you know, again, moving from being, uh, you know, special medical director at uh, Optum to being the um, chief medical officer of Southern California, eventually chief medical officer of the Western region at, at Caremore slash Anthem. Caremore is a, a delegated provider group underneath um, Anthem. Uh, and then eventually transitioned to be the chief medical officer of Oscar Health as they went public. Um, and then now being the chief medical officer of LA Care, I would say that I've seen the chief medical officer role uh, in a number of different spaces, in a number of different business lines. And uh, it is an interesting role. And I think there are multiple ways to do this role. Uh, you could be the sort of the rubber stamp uh, for medical care. You could be the person who sort of espouses you know, preventative care, guideline-based care, value-based care. And I think that's an important role uh, to be sort of the chief advocate for the health of members. Um, I've always taken a, a little bit of a different tact. Not only have I been that person out front who's making sure that our members are well taken care of medically, um, but I also have been pretty heavily, uh, have had a pretty heavy operational tilt, meaning that I um, have usually had, you know, large teams underneath me, uh, I've had operational control over our uh, over our, our business lines. Um, in my current role, I have 
our case management teams, our utilization management teams, our quality teams, our facility site review, our uh, our accreditation teams. I have our pharmacy department, our quality, uh, all that sort of runs underneath me, including all of our behavioral health, social services, community sports programs, and ECM programs under Calian, uh, and all of our housing initiatives. So I have a pretty big, I would say, book of business yeah. um, that I have, uh, you know, financial and, and operational control over, which it, it gives me, you know, a, a ton of um, a joy that not only am I there in name, uh, but I'm not just a figurehead. I'm able to actually operationally change things and improve things for our members. Yeah. And a lot of members at that 2.9 million. So you mentioned safety net earlier. Uh, we actually had an LA care episode in the past with the director of safety net initiatives. Uh, but I think a lot of folks who are listening in today um, may not have seen or heard that episode. Could you, the phrase safety net, like, what does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, safety net is a, is a interesting, interestingly coined term. I think it means different things to different people. Um, and we've even at LA care used it in different contexts in the past. I mean, the idea of a, the safety net is the um, uh, publicly funded system that underlies our Medi-Cal population. It's how our Medi-Cal population receives their care, whether that's through uh, county hospitals, whether that's through the um, federally qualified um, health clinics, whether that's through our community clinics, uh, it's the um, underpinnings of our health, of the healthcare system uh, for those who are most in need. Um, I'd also say that you know uh, hospitals that aren't just strictly medical hospitals or county hospitals are also part of the safety net. I mean, some of our larger hospitals. Uh, that even those that are private still have a significant Medi-Cal population that sees them. And in that light, they too are part of the safety net. Um, but when we refer to the safety net, we're referring to those who are providing care for our Medi-Cal population, oftentimes, you know, uh, dealing with a lot of state regulation um, and oftentimes a lot of low state reimbursements. And so um, we, as a healthcare community, have to hold hands together in terms of bolstering that safety net and making sure that it, it is not only there for our members now, but is there for our members five, 10 years from now. Um, I'd also say as part of that safety net, uh, there's a ton of initiatives that go out there that I would say are sort of uh, bolted on uh, to it, which means our housing initiatives, you know, for to treat uh, those who are unhoused, um, our food safety programs, you know, our, our food, pro our, sorry, our food security programs, um, a lot of our safety programs, uh, there's a ton of stuff uh, around health education, around linguistics, around culture, around health equity that sort of are bolted on as things that we ought to do for, you know, the county population that is most in need um, and can be viewed through a wider lens of healthcare as being part of our healthcare uh, uh, fabric. Okay, awesome. Great great depth in that definition that is awesome so you've been at la care almost a year now or? almost a year yeah tell us in your first year what have been some of the maybe some of the highlights that you've seen or experienced oh wow i mean probably too too many to count i would say the biggest highlight has been my team you know i i, I oversee a relatively large team here at um at la care and in coming into this role one of the things that i noted was just how mission driven they were and how much they they cared and I, you know i know that that's a, that's that's a trite thing to say and i think everybody says it no matter where they are that you know they they work with a mission driven staff 
Um, all that being said, they're, you know, in everybody's role, in everybody's job, in everybody's life, there's always some element of apathy or some element of, hey, you know, learned helplessness that I, you know, I can't get this thing done. I can't yes. get this thing done yeah. fast enough. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take a day and, uh, you know, take it a little bit easy. I'm on video. I'm not in the office. Nobody is. There's not a ton of that at LA Care. I would say every single person um, down to the frontline teammates that I work with, they come to work with a fire that burns. And it is this sense that, God, we can't let even one day, one wasted day go by where we're not trying our hardest to help these people. And it's that mission-driven culture, that sense that like there's this this need that needs to be addressed um, that drives everybody who works here. And that's been probably the most refreshing thing. You know, you, you come into a place like LA Care, a pretty large beast, treating a very large number of members and a health plan at that. And you think to yourself, you know, how engaged are people going to be? You know, they're just clocking in and clocking out. And I come to work and, you know, people are uh, working all hours of the day and night. Uh, because they know that they're in a position to help people. Um, and everything tracks back to healthcare. I think that's the second thing that, that really uh, was a surprising highlight for me is that, you know, unlike some health plans that I've been, uh, you know, that I've gone around and talked to, uh, the mission is not confused. It's provide better healthcare. Um, and it, it, it matters that uh, it's this, this needy population that we're serving. So, you know, two, two elements there. One is the, that mission-driven sense, that sense of acid reflux that everybody has here to do better. Yeah. And the second thing is that um, um, that line that, you know, whether you're at a health plan or no matter where you're at, everybody knows that even if they're doing claims or they're, they're doing, you know, risk adjustment, they're doing STARS work, they're doing, they're working in safety net, uh, they know that they're ultimately there for the members' better health. Absolutely, that's great. Uh, that fire is important um, for that two, those two point nine million, most of whom are medical. Um, so, you, you, this is a quick tangent. Learned helplessness. I didn't know that phrase until a couple of years ago, and it is one of my favorite phrases. And the fact that people just put their head hands up and you know don't take action or just don't don't do anything. Um, I, I see that. And so I like the fact that you're mentioning, you don't really see that with your team and that there's yeah. that fire. So, you know, I gotta, I gotta say, this is, there, there's some main culture elements that I've tried to bring in as I've joined LA care. I think, you know, one of them is this idea that, Hey, listen, if a door closes on you, uh, you know, you have, there's, there's two natural responses. One of them is to hit your head against that door to keep banging on it, to keep trying to push through it. Um, and, uh, and the second one is just to sort of shrug your shoulders and say, Hey, listen, the door is closed. What do you want me to do? And, uh, culturally one element that I've tried to get across to my team and everyone who's willing to listen, um, is that you got to find another way, just figure nice. it out, get a ladder, climb above the wall, break into a window, go around the back, see if the door in the back's open. Um, because you know, it, it's, it's not about saying that, Hey, listen, I knocked on the door three times. I completed my job. Yeah. It's, did you get into the house? Right. Did you actually make your way in? Did you actually fix something? Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's this idea that, you know, 
sometimes being helpless is the easiest thing that you could do. Um, and it, but it's not the thing that's actually going to help our members. And so don't be helpless. Figure out a different way. I love it, man. It, it's similar. I think it aligns with extreme ownership, right? Those go hand in hand. I, uh, I coach soccer on the side, volunteer my son's team and they're uh, 12, 13 year olds and trying to get them away from that learned helplessness and into that extreme ownership. And it's cool yeah. to see. Um, so what you're saying really resonates with me. So, yeah, I mean, we, when I started, uh, we did two major things here at LA Care. One was uh, we did a redesign of our team. We reformatted the departments and their alignments and uh, some of the, the organizational structure. I think the second thing we did was really look at our foundational, um, you know, where we had some gaps and, and tried to fill them as quickly as we could. But one core piece of that and things that we talk about regularly with the team every day, even now a year into it, is culture. And it's that culture around, hey, listen, you know, the you oftentimes can't affect the way another person reacts. You can't affect a state regulation. You can't affect how um, something comes out in the media. You can't affect, uh, you know, perhaps even another division's response to what you, you do. Uh, but the one thing you can't affect is yourself and utilize that to, the, to your betterment. And understand that you're not doing things just to make yourself feel better. You're using, you're um, doing things to try to actually improve things for our members. And so, don't give up. Uh, find a different way. Uh, do it yourself. Love it. So, speaking of doing, um, at the State of Reform conference a month ago, um, you uh, were on a panel of leaders, and you stood out the most to me. And you weren't willing to, you know, kind of sugarcoat things, which I appreciate. Um, and so one of the things you talked about was how, you know, when you guys either go through an audit or you're, you're looking as leaders to see what can you guys improve upon, just like any organization, and maybe there's 800 different things we can all improve upon, right, in our companies. Um, but you were very clear, like, no, let's, the vi so I always say the vital few, right? Like, what are the most important? So for you at LA Care, going into your second year or maybe heading into 2024, are you able to share with us any specific initiatives or efforts that you guys are going to be making to provide that better care that you're talking about? Yeah. So I'll, I'll speak in a little bit of ambiguity to, to protect our future plans, but um, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, I think, you know, one thing that is very high up on my list is supporting this safety net. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can support um, our providers, our hospital systems, et cetera. I think one is by being as operationally sound as humanly possible. And we've put in a lot of money into staffing our utilization management teams, our case management teams, our internal teams so that we can have better operational processes. And we're, we're already seeing the fruits of that labor and that's exciting. And I think that supports our safety net. I think the second piece of supporting safety net, if you take that supporting of the safety net as the broad initiative, the number one thing that I'm gonna put out there, I'll say one of it is, you know, making sure that we're as operationally sound as a health plan as we possibly be. I think the second piece of it is making sure that the reimbursements are right um, for our providers and our hospital systems. And, you know, John Bacchus, our CEO, has done a phenomenal job by advocating uh, for the MCO tax to be renewed and for it to be targeted towards improved reimbursements. 
Um, and the first time that I've ever seen uh, people from all areas of the healthcare system come together with a common cause and advocate together for somebody who's not necessarily themselves. Um, and that's uh, amazing. You know, LA Care uh, is benefiting uh, not monetarily by this. We're benefiting because we know that we're actually helping the safety net, that we're helping our providers provide better care to, to the members. And so, you know, John was um, the first and foremost person who sort of brought that forward. And so I think there's supporting the safety net in terms of our operations. I think there's supporting the safety net financially, which we are advocating to do consistently. I think the third element is supporting that safety element in terms of advocacy with the state government. There's a ton of administrative burden that is coming down uh, to our providers, our hospital systems, et cetera, from the state as part of either regulation or penalties. And it's not our job to just fight that. It's our job to move that in a direction that's actually going to be positive for our members. You know, I said this at that conference, and, and I'll say it to you again, which is, you know, it's it would be easy for me to come out and say, we need more money. Yeah. Because our providers need more money. Everybody needs more money. We need more money. Gimme, 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 gimme. It would also be easy for me to say we should live in a regulatory free space where there shouldn't be any penalties and you, sh you shouldn't be, you know, giving me compliance audits every 15 seconds because this burden on me. But actually, that's not my message. My message is I'm, I'm, okay, I'm OK with you giving the money downstream to my providers so that they can provide better care for our members. I'm okay not coming to you and asking you for a ton of money to support CalAIM, but what I need for you to do is to make your asks of CalAIM something that's gonna be functional, something that's gonna be streamlined, and something that is actually be beneficial to our members, something that I can cone down to a list of a few priorities. Yeah. And on the regulatory side, I can say, hey, listen, you know, I get that you're, you're trying to regulate here, but don't take money out of the system, put money back into it. Any money that you that you take out in a penalty, give us back so that we can actually train our providers uh, on the ground as to how to do their work in a better value-based way. You know, telling me that we're not hitting a quality metric, taking some money out and taking it outside of uh, the healthcare system doesn't actually help me get better quality metrics for our members. If you give it back to me, I can, I can you know, transform some of those clinics into value-based care clinics and get those quality measures addressed. And so for me, the way that I would frame it is, how are we going to help the safety net in 2024? One is being more operationally sound. Uh, two is uh, by making sure that we are getting some better financing for our providers on the ground. And three is seeing if we can make the regulation make a little bit more sense to decrease the administrative burden. Uh, and to actually put money, more money back in the system instead of removing it by way of penalties. That's good. That's good stuff. So let's talk. You mentioned burden. Let's shift that phrase and think about the patient. So, and again, a lot of what I'm, I'm bringing up with you is based on some of the things I heard you share last month. So one of the stories that I think a lot of folks can relate to, especially if other leaders are listening in today, is the whole duplication of services um, and the whole a patient has five different case managers, one from the hospital, one from the plan, one from their primary care, and they're getting reached out to by all these different people. And it's duplicative. 
how do we solve this? Or what ideas do you have? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this also when we spoke earlier, uh, which is this idea that I feel like we actually had a pretty good answer when I was in medical school. I mean, I'm an old man now. I mean, that was a while back. We had a pretty good answer. And the answer was that care would be centered around the primary care doctor. Um, and, you know, we would do it in a value-based care way by not paying per visit or not paying for something that only happened in the clinic, but by paying holistically for that primary care doctor's uh, role in the system. Um, and then by having all prime, all care being quarterbacked by that primary care doctor, having a very well-educated, very well-supported primary care doctor who's not reliant upon specialty-driven care, that's not reliant upon procedures and tests in order to do their work, but somebody who can actually spend, you know, the 20 minutes they need or the 40 minutes they need with the patient in order to truly understand what was wrong with them such that they didn't send them for useless tests or didn't have to send them to a, a specialist to decrease the risk of malpractice. Um, that was the plan. And I, I would even say that, you know, I was a medical student at UCLA. The plan was uh, so clear to the medical community that UCLA, I remember I was at UCLA for medical school, they were actually decreasing the number of beds at UCLA Medical Center. We, they went from the old medical center to the new one at Ronald Reagan. My God, I'm dating myself by saying that the new Ronald Reagan Medical Center. But there was a massive decrease in the number of beds. Um, going from one hospital to the next, they felt like they didn't need them anymore because they were gonna get most of the care done on an outpatient basis through the primary care doctor. But somehow we took our eyes off that. Somehow that that's no longer the plan. The plan is instead to just throw spaghetti against the wall and see how many people can reach out to the patient because more is better. And so now we say, well, the health, the health plan needs to go ahead and have a case manager who reaches out. The hospital should do that. Everybody's got quality metrics, 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 KPIs and metrics, which at yeah. the end of the day in the healthcare system means checking the box. And so now we got five different parties trying to check off the box. And so it turns into a mechanical exercise that, as you mentioned, is duplicative. And B, uh, is just going through the motions and actually isn't helping anybody. And so the, I think you, the beginnings of your question were, how do we get away from that? Well, the answer is to go back to the future, right? It's, okay. to, it's to, to try to get back to the sense that like, you know, ultimately, Let's bolster the primary care's office such that they could do this work. Give them the curbside consultation that they need through the specialists to give them the specialty information that they need. Um, give them the support from the hospital about all the information, all the things that happen in the hospital. Make sure it gets to your primary care doctor so that they can handle that transition properly. Uh, make sure that the case management resources live within the primary care doctor's office so that there's a close connection to the doctor themselves. Uh, make sure that they have a full understanding every time a patient moves from a skilled nursing facility to a hospital or a hospital back to skilled nursing facility. Uh, you know, we have decentralized the care instead of centralizing it with one accountable party. And I think all of us know what ends up happening when you decentralize something so critical. Nobody's accountable. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. responsible. Nobody has a full view of what's going on. And that leads to that leads to trouble. And so instead of throwing spaghetti against the wall, let's like, you know, get it back to where it ought to be, get the role responsibility back to the primary care doctor where it belongs. That sounds good. <laughs> it sounds good doing it. It's another, 
another story. Uh, my last thing that I, I wanted to ask as we wrap up, and I don't know how this is possible, but there's so many different systems, right? We live, we're in California. There's tens of millions of people, 10 million in LA County. You guys have 3 million that you are responsible for. How do we, you, you, well, let me backtrack. You mentioned the doctor should be aware of if a patient transitions from sniff to hospital or hospital to sniff. But there's a ton of different systems. Is there a way we can get everybody on one system? Or do you have any ideas? How do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think we, I say this all the time, which is, you know, if, if we can manage to get somebody to walk, a human being to go walk on the moon, but we can't get the record of an admission to a hospital to the primary care doctor, I smell something fishy going on. Something yes. odd is happening, right? Yeah. And I would say that the odd thing is that there's a lot of middle people. There's a lot of reasons for obfuscation. People are living in ambiguity on purpose. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that, right? The systems yeah. don't for a reason. It's not because nobody wants them to talk, right? The IT is not synced for a reason. And so I, I guess my my statement back and what I've been advocating for when it comes to regulation comes to the state is, you know, we could talk as much as we want about one single healthcare system. We talk as much as we want about us hitting these quality metrics, colonoscopies, mammograms, cervical cancer screening. All those things are extremely important. But if you're going to come down with a heavy hand, come down with a heavy hand, set a system in place where everybody talks to each other, right? Like you could do that. You're a regulator. You're the state. Like that's the one thing that you ought to be really good at is creating consistency, right? Yeah. Like we did this with a lot of other systems. I mean, there's, there's not, we're, we're not going all willy nilly and building our own freeways, right? So we should be able to do this, you know? There's, there's common sets and standards and codes for, for streaming. I know there is on my TV set. I know that if I have a USB cable, it'll fit every single TV, no matter what make it is. Right. There's ways to regulate this. There's got to be. Uh, and so, like, we just have to cone down our efforts um, and do this with a little bit of a different approach. There's definitely room for regulation. It's just not in the spaces where we're being regulated. Yeah, no, well said. And there are definitely a lot of I'll just put I, I agree with much of what you said. Well, um, thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, Dr. Amin, and if folks want to, um, I'm not sure if you're active on social media or LinkedIn, or um, but are there any places people can follow what LA Cares up to? Is the website the best place to learn yeah, about? Yeah, the website's website? probably the best place. Um, we got a pretty snazzy website, so uh, feel free to go to it and, and look around. All right, that's lacare.org. I know it well. Um, again, thank you so much for joining the show today. Best wishes no um, with, uh, I know you're, you're raising your family. So best wishes with your kids and um, we will take care. All right, appreciate it. It was really great to see you. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.